good afternoon and good morning guys, gals and non-binary pals wherever you are and whenever in time you've chosen to tune in, thank you for listening. This is Owning Shakespeare. This is the show that takes a deep dive into a single Shakespeare speech to uncover the creative opportunities embedded in the text and translate these into a unique performance with an incredible Shakespearean actor. I'm your host, the actor, writer, director Rob Miles and my guest for today's show is the driven, the exciting and the prolific Isabel Adamarco Young. Isabel is a queer actor of English and Ghanaian origins with a determination for social change. She has worked with the RSC, the Royal Court and recently played Juliet at Regent's Park Open Air Theatre, winning the Best Lead Actress Award at the Black British Theatre Awards. All her work is unified by principles of collaboration, creative community, intersectionality and a deep-rooted belief in the capacity of art in the hands of people to make change. An alumna of the National Youth Theatre Rep Company, she bridges theatre, festivals and events with her all-female and non-binary drag collective, PEX, as well as being a collaborator with the incredible Shotgun Carousel. On top of all this, she is even a founding director of Brainchild, an award-winning multidisciplinary summer festival which launched in 2012, seeking to blur the boundaries between artist and audience and to foster new ideas in a sponsorship-free environment. Brainchild now hosts 3,000 attendees every summer and runs arts events through the year as well as sell-out parties. As an enthusiastically intersectional feminist, she can be found representing 50-50 Parliament and other campaigns for equality and diversity, as well as speaking to and writing for collections and publications including the BBC, The Guardian, Vice, ID, Time Out and more. As someone who sounds incredibly busy across just about every touch point, it's an honour to get to spend this time with you today, Isabel. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It's really exciting to be here. <laughs> it's honestly, I'm excited for what's about to happen. Obviously, I know what the speech is, uh, but our audience doesn't. Uh, for those listening at home, uh, this session is all about discovering your personal passion, your enthusiasm and curiosity for and about Shakespeare's text. And there's no better way to do that than to ask our guests to select the speech that they're going to dive into for their episode. So, Isabel, what speech have you chosen and why? Oh, it wasn't easy. So, I mean, what a prompt. I was over the moon. <laughs> um, but eventually I decided to do... Um, Cleopatra from Antony and Cleopatra. Um, it's a role that I've always liked the look of. Um, hint, hint, wider world. Um, and I thought <laughs> I'd start out um, quite early on, act one, scene five, she's speaking to her maid, Charmian, um, about her love, Antony. Beyond the obvious, putting it out there into the universe, manifesting, so to speak, <laughs> uh, is there any particular reason that you wanted to focus on this character in particular? Yeah, I think she's... Um, I mean, it's a question that comes up quite often, like, oh, which Shakespearean character would you like to play? And honestly, as someone who performs as a drag king and sort of, you know, uh, explores gender performativity, I don't really feel limited in what character it would be possible for me to play. Um, but I've always just felt really drawn to her. I love her playfulness. I love her power. I love that she is literally a queen. Um, and I just find it really interesting, the sort of the power dynamics between her and Antony as these two very like politically powerful people but who are subject to one another as lovers. That's so interesting. The kind of inversion of Antony and Cleopatra in terms of gender performativity was something that seemed to be in a way embedded into the text and the idea that um, Cleopatra kind of bends gender in herself by being a woman in power at that time. Um, so how do you find, I guess, Cleopatra's um, performance of gender? Yeah, I think it's intriguing. I think, um, I mean, as I think we'll probably find in this in this speech, like what I love about her is that she describes herself as a trader in love. Um, and she very much uses her kind of like her past 
sexual relationships um, and her physical beauty and the fact that she is admired to her own ends um, and other people do as well. And then as soon as she's doing it against what they want, they weaponize it against her and say, oh, she's this, you know, this serpent or this temptress or this, you know, these sort of racial slurs like gypsy or, you know, these many different things. Mm. Um, but I think it's really interesting that she herself weaponizes it as well to her own yeah ends. absolutely that double-edged sword certainly i think that's that's a wonderful insight mm. straight off the bat so um in order to uh, allow our audience to follow along on this journey that we're going to go on would you be able to give us a first cold read of the text that we're going to be examining today no intention no acting just so that we've heard the words out loud uh, before we go on to explore them absolutely oh charmian where thinkst thou he is now stands he or sits he or does he walk or is he on his horse? O oh, happy horse, to bear the weight of Antony. Do bravely, horse, for what's thou whom thou movest? The demi-atlas of this earth, the arm and burgeonet of men. He's speaking now, or murmuring. Where's my serpent of old Nile? For so he calls me. Now I feed myself with most delicious poison. Think on me, that am with Phoebus amorous pinches black and wrinkled deep in time. Broad-fronted Caesar, when thou wast here above the ground, I was a morsel for a monarch. And great Pompey would stand and make his eyes grow in my brow. There would he anchor his aspect and die with looking on his life. Fabulous. Thank you so much. Oh, it's so rich with potential, isn't it? That's amazing. So, uh, dear listeners... There will be a link to an annotated Google Doc provided in the description of this podcast so that if you want to see the work done today uh, on the page, you will be able to do so and then you can follow along as you listen. Uh, so now that we've heard the speech, I'm just wondering if you might be able to share a little bit of context for us in terms of who the character is, what's happened to them so far and what are they going through right now in this particular passage? Absolutely, yeah. So um, we are hearing Cleopatra, she is at home. Um, she's the queen of Egypt. Um, we are in, I think it's about 40 BCE, um, but Shakespeare's play was written in 1606. Um, so she has um, this great sort of military leader, Mark Antony, um, who was aligned with Julius Caesar, um, without going into all of the ins and outs of the politics of the time. Um, he... <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, not least because I probably don't understand it all too well, but feel free to chip in. Um, he has, uh, he's joined this uh, sort of what they call a triumvirate. So him and his uh, current friend Octavius Caesar and his friend Lepidus um, are ruling the sort of empire. Um, and he has come to Cleopatra's region to kind of um, fortify their support for his triumvirate. Um, and he's seen Cleopatra appear. There's this wonderful description of her arriving on her boat to meet him. He's essentially fallen for her. The barge sees satin like a burnished throne burned on the water. It's oh. just one of the best pieces of text I think Glorious, he ever wrote. Exactly. So um, and so who could resist? He's fallen for her and he's <laughs> um, begun having essentially an affair with her because he is married um, at the top of the play to Fulvia. Um, so Cleopatra is, she's mad about him. Um, he's had to leave her um, and go back to his political obligations. So she's now waiting for him at home. Um, I think it's the first time they've been apart since they got together. Um, so she's basically visualising what he's up to and um, 
thinking back on her old lovers, we can read into that what we want. <laughs> and uh, yeah, essentially sort of conjuring him in front of her. But the only person that's actually, well, there's a couple of people in the room with her, two servants, uh, Charmian, who's her very close friend, um, and Mardian, who is the eunuch, who's a sort Brilliant. of entertainer, I suppose. Oh, thank you so much. That was a great summary. Uh, and yes, as far as Roman history goes, we could be here all day if we wanted to recount the full <laughs> interpersonal dynamics of that whole side of things. But I think as far as this speech is concerned, uh, yeah, absolutely uh, spot on. Perfect. Um, great. That means a lot so, coming from you, Rob. Thank no... you. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be daft. I'm by no means uh, a Roman history expert, uh, but I might be I might be a tiny bit of a Roman history nerd. Uh, <laughs> Uh, wonderful so without further ado then uh, let's dive in the beginning as we know is a very good place to start Uh, so the formal question is uh, you have a speech to prepare where do you Isabella DeMarco Young begin when addressing a speech like this for the first time so I know that lots of actors have a very sort of set practice and they'll have their you know four specific approaches and so on I have to admit I'm not one of those glorious people Um, (laughs) so I think my first things I will do will be obviously read the whole play. Um, for me, a lot of character insight comes from finding out what recurs throughout a play. So noticing if words, if characters use particular words over and over again or mm. figures of speech or cultural reference points, um, particularly with something like Shakespeare, which can seem very dense, famously. Um <laughs> noticing what matters to a character and what they circle back to is a really lovely way of kind of finding out more about them as a person um and i think particularly in a speech like this which isn't specifically she's not trying to persuade someone of something necessarily you know it's a moment of kind of thought and a moment of entertaining herself um although we can discuss that more if you have thoughts rob um (laughs) (laughs) i think it's just a really it's a this speech in in a way is a good chance to get to know cleopatra um and so yeah seeing what else resonates is a really good way of doing that for me um but once i've read as much as i can of uh her speech in general um as in throughout the play um i will cycle back to this specific piece of text um and i guess the first things that i'll be thinking of are um verse um what's the kind of rhythm of it what's the the sort of pace the intensity um is it sharp and broken up or is it long thoughts why um and then i'll just sit down and speak it out loud and think about how she's going to be feeling at each point what is each thought doing to her and why um which can take you in a lot of different directions (laughs) um but is i find (laughs) really fruitful great was loads to dive in there so um straight away you talked about reading the whole uh kind of passage or certainly all of her passages of text to to find kind of i guess repetitions themes imagery uh that seems to be important to the character um did you make any discoveries there and do any of them resonate in this particular piece of text yes absolutely well i mean one thing that just really pinged out to me um was uh the word morsel actually morsel um and i think it's a very yeah um so in the speech, it's uh, it comes when she's talking about Caesar. Um, she says, broad-fronted Caesar, when thou wast here above the ground, he's currently dead, so she means when he was alive, I was a morsel for a monarch. 
Um, and I do just, I mean, it sounds like one of those phrases that, you know, you put on a on a tea towel or whatever, isn't it? A morsel for a monarch <laughs> just has this way with words. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. That alliteration though, isn't it? And the, and the assonance of the two O's, I think, you know, they, they, they seem to have a symmetry, those two words. Exactly that. Um, and I think this idea of morsel is just so interesting because it is something, the implication to me mm. is that is something which is, highly valued in that it's a delicious you know thing that's kind of like if you're having a morsel of food it's not a lot of it it's something that's rare and delicious and like to be savored but at the same time it's something to be consumed yes um, and that is ultimately going to fuel the person that's eating it rather than getting to fulfill itself in any way yeah um, and that feels very relevant wonderful analysis and all that just from morsel but you're so right that that gourmet hors d'oeuvre that kind of yeah delicacy as you say and that's wonderful. Exactly that, yeah. And you think about her, you know, and that sense of kind of like, you know, in the same way as you might have, like I imagine like a scallop or something on like a lovely silver plate, you know, and it's got like a little drizzle of of whatever delicious jus on it or, or whatever it oh, might be. I and love you, it. <laughs> and then you think of Cleopatra. My Cleopatra's, mouth is you know, watering. She, yeah, genuinely. And, and, you know, that description of her that we discussed earlier is that exact same thing. It's, you know, what is she surrounded by and what has she been draped with to make her desirable? But that also mm. that desire she can then use. Resonances, I guess, across the canon with the idea that one of the themes, recurring themes in all of Shakespeare, it seems to me, is the performance of power and that power itself is theatrical. And that mm. in this specific sense, we're talking about her sensual power, I suppose. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. And it's yeah, it's that really rings a bell for me with them. Um, uh, so when I was working on uh, Macbeth, um, we were exploring sort of like how you perform power. And and obviously it's so explored in Macbeth, uh, you know. Um, mm. Oh, I can't remember the exact phrase, but the, he he describes feeling like he's wearing a coat that's too big for him because he's not fit to be a king. Um, oh, I think, yes, I think that might something. be someone, somebody like Lennox or Angus or one of them says something about now do his robes hang loose about him like a giant's robe on a dwarfish thief or something like that. Is that... Oh, the... word for word, Rob. Incredible. Yes, yeah. that is it. <laughs> um, and, and exploring that physically um, on stage, you realise, oh, I that was certainly a big realization for me was that there's only so much you can act power you really rely on the others other actors around you to defer that power to you and that authority to you mm, absolutely, um, yeah. and it's very much a two-way street it's not something that you can generate as an actor on your own playing mm. a, a, an important person yeah i mean not to no we'll, we will let's just keep going because it's I, I love it so uh, there were a couple of things that came out of that which was the sensorial nature of the morsel <laughs> for you. And, you know, you supplied <laughs> us with this wonderful, uh, sumptuous metaphor of the scallop in a jus, <laughs> which I think is beautiful. <laughs> uh, but but how much do you, as an actor, I suppose, uh, I guess conjure that or summon that kind of imagery um, to, to, to activate the word, I suppose? Is, is that something that you find yourself consciously doing or is it more about the, the broad sense of it? When you're really lucky and assuming that there is the time in the rehearsal process, um, taking the time to really embed images is something that I found so, so useful, particularly with Juliet, um, because a lot of her speech is quite, I won't say abstract because that makes it sound like it's not related to the sense, but more, you know, she'll be referring to other things or she'll be comparing things to other things, you know, um, and that is quite common in Shakespearean speech. And sometimes, if you haven't 
spent the time with the text i find it can start to feel like you are just saying some quite complicated words with adjectives <laughs> whereas if you <laughs> we've all been there um whereas oh, yeah. if you get the chance to sit down and really you know draw the image or sit and write a whole story about the experience of encountering the image or whatever it might be it means that even if it's only you're only uh, I, th I think our director Kim uh, who directed Romeo and Juliet um, I think she described it like dropping into the well of the image so even if it's only a fleeting second that you're saying that word you can still access the depth of the image and how it makes you feel because you've done the work and what I find so exciting and I think what's really exciting for an audience is how then those words can be turned on the head in a different context. And as I've said quite a few times already, weaponized. Um, so for instance, going back to Morsel, um, it crops up much, much later in act three um, in I believe scene 13, um, when Mark Antony has turned against Cleopatra um, and he essentially insults her for all the reasons that he once loved her. Um, and he says, I found you as a morsel cold upon dead Caesar's trencher, essentially saying she was like leftovers. And he sort of took her as like a last cold bit of meat or whatever um, when Caesar was done with her. Ooh. And it's the same word, but with the word cold next to it, it's just oh. exactly. I mean, gut wrenching. It's horrible. It really is. It really is. And it's wonderful to know that now because I guess we want the audience to really hear it this time so that then the reflection, the black mirror, if you like, of it later on mm. hits harder, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And of course, no one's, like, no one's necessarily assuming that the audience will remember, you know, act one when that one <laughs> word was said. But it's that kind of, it's that kind of texture and that kind of like interweaving that makes it so rich to watch yeah absolutely even if it's just on a subconscious level right mm -hmm, mm -hmm. brilliant and then i guess just to just to carry on with just this one image uh just a little bit longer i guess do you think it's a form of antithesis which is to say a strong contrast of opposites between morsel and monarch there as well yeah very possibly yeah absolutely in that you know morsel is this kind of fleeting um low status thing a thing that exists to serve someone else and a monarch being you know the all-powerful the thing whose will is met the the entity who controls all other entities and there's so much of that through this play about who leads what and who whose will must be yeah met. absolutely and and i suppose at this point because obviously the monarch in question here is caesar if i'm reading it correctly but she herself now certainly is a monarch um, because I believe historically he helped to actually install her on the throne uh, over her brother at the time, I think it was. Um, yeah. Sorry, nerding out a second there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, so she, a lot has changed, I guess. Um, and, uh, and her relationship to that word, I guess, has changed since Caesar's time. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, that is so true. It's so interesting just to think of her remembering herself as to use the archetypal word the ingenue you know the kind of the young uh naive uh female lover somebody like more like a juliet i suppose um at that time uh and then how far she's come from from there to now 
which might just be an interesting point just to to touch on in a little bit more detail as you have recently obviously played an award-winning Juliet <laughs> uh, what kind of differences did you detect between um, that character and this one I was actually quite surprised about some of the similarities and oh, I wonder wonderful. whether it's um, whether it's a case of Cleopatra's journey through the play because actually a lot of Cleopatra's in early scenes are quite playful she comes across as quite flighty to my eyes there's a lot of um you know there's the sort of comic scene with um the messenger when she's asking the messenger about Antony's new wife and you know (laughs) she wants to know about her hair and how tall she is and if her voice is nice and all these kinds of things um (laughs) and actually in a way I think Juliet's possibly a bit less superficial (laughs) in that particular (laughs) in that particular instance um but the similarity being that sort of sense of, of youth and vulnerability. But I guess where where Cleopatra gets to at the end where she's, you know, she's been in these sort of, in, in these very literal wars um, and she's almost lost her love. And then, you know, he comes to her, spoiler alert, to die. Um, may, maybe it's a case of that, the, that, that sort of flightiness in the beginning um, is set against the depths that Cleopatra reaches towards the end. Yeah, that's fantastic. I think that's such a good way to add texture and dimensionality, I suppose, especially when you're playing monarchs, <laughs> just to return to that yeah. uh, beat for a second, that she was a girl that she does love uh, and that she does retain some essence of her, I guess, inner child, if you like, or her, her kind of younger essence. You know, there's that line... Um, age cannot wither her nor custom stale her infinite variety uh, and and yeah. I guess it, another just related question that leads me on to is how seriously do you take what other people say about your character when you're doing this kind of preparation? I do find it fantastically useful um, not necessarily that I think it is accurate um, but that it tells you <laughs> what <laughs> what uh, what it serves other people to say about you. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm sure you'll have come across and maybe some of the listeners will too have come across this um, exercise where when you're sort of first encountering a character that you'll be playing, you write out uh, what the character says about themselves, what they say about other people, what other people say about them and whatever the fourth one is that I can't quite work out. <laughs> I can't remember it either. I'm maybe afraid. that's it actually. <laughs> yeah. It might, it might just be three. It might just be three. Yeah, I think it might just be three, actually, because it would be what other people say about other people or something. Anyway, mm. but the point being that by grouping these sets of information, you can start to see patterns that you wouldn't necessarily see in single scenes. Um, you know, Cleopatra, for instance, in like quite a different way to Juliet, will really hold a space. So like even just looking at this speech, she's literally just thinking aloud. She's got two people in the room with her. But because they're both her servants, she doesn't need to make space for them to speak or to kind of dismiss them to go off and do whatever actual jobs they need to do. She's just going to talk about what she wants to talk about <laughs> because she's the queen and she can do that. And even from something like that, you can learn. Um, and similarly, I mean, yeah, I find it really interesting the way that Cleopatra and Charmian speak about Cleopatra's past lovers. Mm there's a point where Charmian speaks well of Caesar and Cleopatra calls her up on it because she says, you know, that suggests that you don't think well of Antony. Like you should be praising my current lover 
not my past lover. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so it's just, it's very interesting. I think there's a lot to mine in those. And do you um, think that that's placed there comically uh, in contrast? You know, because obviously there's nothing funnier than hypocrisy, especially in a high status character. Do you think that the audience is, is capable of being aware that she has done this X number of times, Charmian does it once and gets shouted at for doing so when she was just following your lead? Do you know what I mean? Like, is that part of that comic business that that enlivens the relationship i suppose between those characters oh my gosh i think definitely yes i think definitely yes and that's in a way what i find so um exciting about this play is that on the one hand there's this kind of like it is there it's really funny like especially at the beginning there's a lot of there's a lot of um as you say business that is just very entertaining um but at the same time it can't help but resonate with the fact that for instance anthony is almost politically broken by the fact that he's having this relationship with Cleopatra because uh, is it Octavian? I get yeah, Octavius um, is speaking speaking ill of him, you know. And when you look at, for instance, um, Antony's speech in Julius Caesar, you know, Brutus is an honourable man. What people think about you and what they say about you defines your authority, and you yeah. you know even as a king or queen you are still subject to what people make of you um and so it can be so funny and light-hearted and it can also be your downfall reputation right like othello reputation <laughs> yes absolutely so we've done two words morsel and monarch <laughs> <laughs> um but but what but what are two words uh, to launch us into the rest of our exploration um i just want to return um to uh, the thread that we've um kind of departed from here which is about the repeated themes just to make sure that we're not um missing any more of those were there, were there any others in particular that stood out um through through this passage yeah i think um so i guess one that speaks to morsel a little bit is serpent um obviously Mm. a very fraught word to an 1606 audience christian audience there's so much imagery there around deception Mm. and sin and um you know that sort of that desire versus hatred temptation exactly um so it's just such a loaded word and the fact that she describes him here as so she says he's speaking now or murmuring where's my serpent of old nile for so he calls me essentially his nickname for her is serpent which just feels very rogue i mean it's not the first sort of affectionate term that might spring to mind it's Um, not it's not a pet name that i use with my wife i have to say exactly (laughs) but she's clearly i mean as far as we can tell she likes it like certainly now she seems to you know she seems to make a little joke about it so i I wonder whether there's something in that uh, there's something freudian in that as well in terms of the uh, cause I, you know, I'm always on the lookout for cock jokes in Shakespeare. Uh, oh, yeah. It looks like a duck and quacks like a duck. Uh, <laughs> and I do, I do wonder whether there's a slight, um, again, just that, that theme of inversion between the two, um, w- whether this is kind of slightly pointing towards that, I suppose. Yeah, I think very possibly. And I mean, it's very telling that, um, uh, you know, so Cleopatra talks a huge amount about Antony's wife. Um, at the top of the show. I was wondering wife's... where you were going there. It was beautifully placed pregnant pause. <laughs> but yes, I mean, there's wife. a lot of things she talks about. Yeah, exactly. His wife. His wife. Um, who, you know, she, uh, he was married when they met and he's been married while they've been having this affair. Um, and so I guess there is always that element of kind of, you know, that illicit nature to their relationship. So I can see that actually 
serpent might kind of play into some of those themes as well. And so yeah. serpent, mortal, uh, any others popping out there before we move on? Yeah, well, I guess like the classical references, this is something that I always have an eye out for. Um, and I know they can be one of the more intimidating elements of Shakespeare because so often you're just like who is this person is that a noun or a proper name I just don't know um thankfully there are many resources that can help us um absolutely let's just let's just um let's just dive into that for a second so you're talking about classical references if you could point a couple of those up to us but then also just let us know what are the resources that you're using to to take the sting out of those I guess yeah absolutely um well so the two that sort of first leapt out for me in this uh in this speech were atlas or demi atlas um and phoebus's amorous pinches um Mm. or phoebus's amorous pinches black to be more specific on which more later i hope yes Um, yeah 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 we'll we'll definitely get there yeah yeah (laughs) yeah but so atlas and phoebus um i'm so i i have a, a bit of a classics background i would say maybe nerd rather than historian um by your by your own definitions (laughs) Um, but also i mean it is just such a huge world i mean you know the number of references could very literally and do fill a book um so i'll for instance i'd look at atlas and i'd say okay so i know that atlas is a mythical man who carried the world or sort of held the earth on his shoulders I can't actually remember what his story is and I can't remember whether he's like Greek or Roman or, you know, these kind of details. I think, but this... I think he's a Greek Titan, I think. And I think he might hold the sky on his shoulders, I believe. Amazing. Here we yeah. are. Okay, great. So if you're friends with Rob, you can ask Rob. Um, and so if you're, you know, um, if you don't happen to have a Rob Miles to hand, um, you can Google it. Um, I do also have some beautiful books of classical references, which I actually just find oh god I'm going to sound like a gigantic nerd but I do just find them quite enjoyable to read through anyway because some of those stories are so beautiful and fascinating particularly like um Ovid's Metamorphoses um Mm. and yeah just so many myths and legends I find so beautiful and so they spring up so much across western literature that it's just really useful to have a vague idea of them um even just something as simple as like the kids versions of these stories you know you don't have to be reading the direct translation from the greek or the original greek yeah yeah <laughs> i mean you can if you want but not everyone cares to um <laughs> i really <so> then, can't <laughs> um phoebus uh is um like the sun god um and this i actually know from juliet because she likes to chat about phoebus quite a fair bit so right, yeah so you know sure. these things like essentially the internet i would literally just google it um but then as you you know if you're working your way through a whole Shakespearean character, you'll probably get enough references that you start to revisit more, like some resources over others. Um, And you can decide if you want the two line answer or the... So what are your favoured resources? If I'm honest, I'm not sure that I have go-tos. I think, yeah, I think because of my sort of classical literature, like breadth of references, I'd usually just get the sort of short answer and then go, oh yes, and it crops up in this and this or this it reminds me of that do you know what i mean rather yeah than, got you so so a reminder yeah. is a prompt is enough to kind of get the exactly real again. Yeah, but there is nice. a really good one which actually i think we used in the show must go online which was shakespeare's words mm, yeah i love shakespeare's um, words i think that one's <laughs> often the most kind of like rich and concise which is a hard balance to strike <laughs> yeah very much so yeah yeah i guess because it's shakespeare specific that helps <laughs> 
Yes, that really does. And also it's the difference between like, quite often there'll be a level of remove where you can look up the dictionary definition of something like, so, well, so a perfect example would be burgeonet in this speech. So she yeah. says he's the demi-atlas of this earth, the armoured burgeonet of men. You'll look up the dictionary definition and it will say, burgeonet is, I think it's a type of helmet, a light helmet or something. Got you, um, yeah. Let's see what Shakespeare's words says. The arm and helmet of men doesn't have quite the same ring to it, does it? Well, so this is it. So you can get the the meaning. And that doesn't necessarily tell you what she means to say when she says that word, right? Yeah, so there's always absolutely. A, there's always a level of imagination required where you kind of go, okay, if she's talking about him as a helmet, what does she mean by that? Because if me, I was to call ter- someone a helmet, it would have a different connotation. <laughs> very very different exactly (laughs) oh the wonderful development of language (laughs) constantly evolving (laughs) and so i think maybe that's um uh you were talking about antithesis earlier right Mm. um i think maybe here she's saying the arm uh you know you think of arms weaponry that's a very active thing Mm, potentially a violent thing he's a military leader um and then exactly strength um, and then the burgeonet is a helmet, which is obviously kind of part of weaponry, but maybe it's more about defense and protection. And so maybe mm. what she's saying is he's not only the, you know, the sort of hostile man who will take over foreign lands, but he's also caring for his people and he's going to protect them as well. Yeah, that would just defender. be my like yeah. idea. Yeah. No, that's lovely. That's wonderful. So the arm for attack and the burgeonet for defense, as it were. Yeah, Precisely. that's beautiful. Really nice, really nice. So we've got Demi Atlas here, we've got Phoebus. It is interesting, isn't it, that Juliet and um, Cleopatra, obviously, as you've said, uh, there's parallels there in their level of uh, sensuality and Phoebus crops up for both of them. Yeah. Phoebus, because it's a big ball of fire, (laughs) uh, is therefore passionate uh, and therefore tends to be invoked by passionate characters, I guess. Do you think there's something... Yes, yeah, I think that's really interesting um yeah he's he's often around when people are getting getting hot and heavy in whatever way (laughs) um but then i guess actually with juliet her whole thing is night because so much of her love is kind of this very in contrast to cleopatra in fact is very concealed and very secret Mm. and so for her she's always saying oh please you know come civil night and you know hood my mantle and kind of essentially hide me so that I can do what I want and no one yeah. will know. Um, whereas maybe Cleopatra, you know, they're two <laughs> kings and queens. <laughs> they're literally having an affair. They can do what they want, you know. Um, she's talking about all her old loves in front of the servants. She doesn't, yeah, she doesn't care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I do love the listing off of the CV. I think that's, um, do, do you think that that's, uh, do you think she's name dropping there? Do you think that she's... Uh... Why do you think it is that she references these other lovers, I suppose? Yeah, I think as an actor, if I was going to be acting it, I'd have to say, like, why is she saying this now? Like, what is she doing to others or to herself? Because otherwise it's just like, she's just talking. Yeah. You know, she's not busy. There's no messengers coming in. Just chatting for the sake of chatting, which doesn't really serve the story or explain It's not great drama, is it? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Um, And so, yeah, I think that CV point that you made is really relevant. I think she's kind of um, maybe like boosting herself up in a way. Um, She's, you know, her lover is far away. She finally gave him permission to leave, although it was a bit of a confrontation in an earlier scene. And so, you know, initially she wants to fantasize about him, but then she's kind of thinking like, actually, 
you know, she has this brief moment where she sort of talks herself down, actually. She kind of insults herself. And then the next second, she's thinking back on her old, uh, uh, what's the word? Like, conquests. And I think conquest is exactly the word because it has that military and powerful implication, but also the amorous one. Yeah, yeah. So I I, I have a a history nerd question, actually, a kind of black spot in my knowledge and understanding here. Um, Obviously, we've talked about Caesar, broad-fronted Caesar, uh, but then we've got Great Pompey. uh, Mm. And then she goes on to describe uh, him and what he did. Was Pompey a lover of hers? or Or no, was it just that while she was with Caesar... Pompey couldn't keep his eyes off her. It might have just been that, actually. That's kind of how it reads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Stand and make his eyes grow in my brow. Uh, there would he anchor his aspects uh, and die with looking on his life. <laughs> <laughs> so, what do we? Just unpacking the sense of that. Then, what do we? What do we think it is that um, she's getting at? <laughs> yeah. Well, paraphrase. I think actually, like of of the whole speech, that's probably for me the densest bit or the bit that the bit that (laughs) so realistically in a rehearsal room we'd probably sit and discuss this for quite a while and then ultimately Mm. whoever has to speak it would have to kind of just make their own call call, about what makes sense for them because I think to a listening ear you know when I say great Pompey would stand and make his eyes grow in my brow there would he anchor his aspect etc etc you can hear the meaning is he couldn't take his eyes off me right yeah but the actual certainly what i feel like i'm picking up (laughs) exactly Um, in my constant search to turn everything into a cock joke um you've got stand grow and die and die uh having the french um association of petty more little death which is a euphemism for orgasm often used as a double meaning um so the idea that he uh to paraphrase lonely island jizzed in his pants (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh my god i love that song <laughs> that's actually one of my favorite songs i love that you've referenced that <laughs> exactly exactly and you know and when you i mean yeah as soon as you start picking out those words even anchor i'm like oh god you know <laughs> mm-hmm. as soon as it's introduced as an idea yeah it's it's everywhere um, yeah yeah and, I mean, but, and yet the cigar is just a cigar but <laughs> <laughs> But yet, grammatically, it would take a bit of unpicking, I think. For sure. And in a way, yeah, I think images like make his eyes grow. I don't know if we really have an equivalent for that now. But if you picture the image, it's like a cartoon. It's like the heart eyes, you know. And you can totally understand what it is that she's saying. Looney Tunes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. For sure. I love the idea of trying trying to, I guess, mock him or send him up by invoking that spirit or that quality as you're saying it you know the the absurdity i guess of his eyes growing um you know it's easy i guess in shakespeare to assume that everything's a poetic metaphor and therefore it's um rich and sensual and all the other things that we've been talking about but sometimes an image is allowed to be absurd as well right and ridiculous and and we can pull that flavor out as well uh, in service of contrast i suppose absolutely and i think it really that really that again it comes back to what we were saying about power and performing power Mm. she is talking about having you know slept with these men and her power over them in that way it's not a coincidence that she says great Pompey would sound and make his eyes grow and you know she says he would anchor his aspect like 
she is kind of mocking him, whether it's affectionately or whether it's cruelly. You know, that's mm. up to the to the actor to decide, I suppose. And yeah, P- Pompey the Great, Pompey Magnus was his name, essentially. So um, she's definitely, I guess, is dunking on him a fair way to <laughs> describe <laughs> it? Like, she's, she's building him up to then uh, top him, right? Well, quite. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I think, honestly, you know, it's it's very easy with Shakespeare to kind of get bogged down in, you know, the classical reference and the, you know, and the etymology and stuff, which is my happy place. But also like, <laughs> it will be more fun for everyone watching. If you dunk, like dunk away, it's what she's doing. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> dunk it, dunk it. That's what makes it Brilliant. relatable, you know? <laughs> I mean, who hasn't oh, like, it. you know, gone on a little rant about their ex or whatever. That is, that is the stuff of humanity. And it's in Cleopatra as much as it's in Saturday night. Especially, as, as you say, if Charmian, she's got this best friend's dynamic with uh, Charmian. Um, and it's a, a private conversation in that, obviously, there's not thousands of people being addressed. Um, uh, there's an opportunity to have fun there. there? Absolutely, yeah. And I think, I, like, just looking back at those first few lines, it's, it's very telling again. She asks Charmian several questions, which she does not give Charmian the opportunity to answer. <laughs> 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 Great. So let's let's dig into that then. So so yeah. So obviously she doesn't give an opportunity uh, to answer here. Um, what do you think is? I guess are, what are the opportunities there? I guess. Is the I guess this is one of those things where I'd probably say, oh, I'll put a pin in this for the room for once I'm with Charmian, you know, to to work out what the sort of actual stage business of that might be. But there's every opportunity for Charmian to attempt to answer at least one of those questions <laughs> and just be bulldozed Brilliant. over, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, I love that you're uh, deferring to um, uh, the other actor in the room as well, giving them a chance to uh, make their own choices about what their business might be uh, at that point. Yeah, and I think that's really, that's something that... Um, Uh, I think one of the things that I found a little scary about Juliet was, you know, and I'm sure this is a case, you know, drama school auditions or whatever, is that thing of when you're speaking for a long time, you just think people don't do this. Who, Who am I speaking to? And sometimes it's, you know, it's clearer than others. And sometimes you really do have to decide for yourself. Um, and it's about making often it's about turning the audience into that thing or using the audience as a sort of sounding board or you know there are so many different theories about this but in this speech you're very lucky that at least initially she is literally speaking to Charmian so you have someone to interact with like you for sure for sure it puts me in mind of uh, Rosalind in As As You Like It Um, she says um, what did he when thou sourced him what said he how looked he wherein went he what makes he here did he ask for me where remains he how parted with thee and when shalt thou see him again answer me in one word <laughs> and it's just like this machine gun of questions like you can see the other person just like under attack right <laughs> under fire Absolutely. from all of these uh, all of these different questions that have been pelted rapid fire uh, it, it leads me actually back to one of the initial things that you said when you were just kind of scoping out what your exploration would be you talked about rhythm pace intensity sharp or broken up long thoughts i suppose what are the clues in the text that you're using to uh, i guess identify that for one and then what are you going on to weaponize to borrow your term <laughs> uh, those into fr- to translate them from opportunities into choices i guess so there are some useful exercises around this um that have come up for like a few times for me in rehearsals or at school or in classes and so on um really lovely 
things like um, walking the line um, or there's one where you change direction. Can you remember how, how it exactly works? Um, I think there's a few different variations. So you can you can uh, change direction at the end of a line. You can change direction on a exclamation, question mark or full stop or then on any piece of punctuation. Um, and then you can just see, I guess, how that changes the, the shape of your journey, I guess, or the journey of your thoughts. Yeah, totally, totally. So like, I find that really, really useful to kind of um, tell you something about like, where the character's head is at right if they've got a new thought coming in every third word they're clearly um (laughs) (laughs) they're either confused or they're just overwhelmed or they're you know they could be very enthused about lots of different ideas at the same time or even very afraid of lots of different ideas at the same time so it doesn't necessarily tell you the the emotion but it tells you the quality of thought which can then help you understand the quality of behavior nice nice so i guess in terms of obviously we've got the these questions here uh Mm. and then we move from questions into exclamations which i suppose are they're less common in shakespeare than they are elsewhere i guess so when when you have exclamations they tend to be important i suppose um so are we using these pieces of punctuation just thinking in terms of if you were to if you were to walk the line or another version of that as well uh, which helps me because I'm I'm a natural um, racehorse and I'll just gallop through the text <laughs> give it <half> a chance <laughs> um, uh, is to actually sit down and stand up on every piece of uh, kind of end line punctuation so a question mark full stop or a, a, a exclamation point but I guess when we're finding these do you tend to try and differentiate the delivery I guess at all between those um, and if so what what are you how are you using them I guess. So, I mean, if we look at if we're looking at those first sort of four lines, each um, question is a sort of is a new idea. So it's like she's entertaining all these different prospects. Right. So then like it would be a case of deciding how she feels about each one. So maybe initially I would lean more into like the fact that she's not giving Charmian the chance to answer. She's just loving going on this sort of steamroller of thought so she's going you know where is where is he now is he standing or sitting is or is he walking but then i think by the time you get to is he on his horse and the fact that she stays with the idea of horse i think that's the one she likes like that's the one she chooses right because she sticks with the idea of the horse so then nice. so she's auditioning images precisely <laughs> she yeah finds the one she likes and and hires it yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. exactly and nice. then that's why it merits a whole line because she's gone right this is what i'm like please enter my brain let's just let's just entertain this thought so that's when and i think you can tell from the way that it goes from horse and then anthony comes right before the exclamation mark because that he is ultimately mm. the point of all of this yeah we've got horse three times as well haven't we so we've got that rule of three which is always useful mm-hmm. um i think i think that's that's one that always tends to kind of just my brain kind of auto highlights it now <laughs> yeah <laughs> I've said it three times. It must be significant. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It is Uh, true, though. It's so true. Uh, And then again, back on my uh, innuendo bingo, when we're talking about bearing the weight of Anthony. (laughs) Yes, quite. (laughs) Yeah. So she's saying, you know, happy horse. She's saying, what a lucky horse. Essentially, I wish I was that horse. Um, and do you know who does this so beautifully is um, Sophie Okonedo in the Nationals production. I just love the way. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because it's, you know, 
I mean, it's it's up to you as the actor how you want to deliver it, but like done well, it's just so perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for me again, uh, you know, I'm uh, I'm looking for these things uh, to to suit an agenda of general filthiness, but um, it does start with a big <laughs> O as well. <laughs> so, you know, uh, yes. if there was a clue, uh, I would argue that that might that might be it. Um, so with, with the O's, uh, do you do? Are you an O person or are you just a make a noise person? I think that's another of the things that I was really nervous about going in to Juliet. Right. Um, it just felt like one of the things that was the furthest from my natural speech. So much of what she says, I could just find it or relate it to something that I feel or that I would say, you know, no matter how complex the language. Sure. But an O is so honest and pure and I guess probably just vulnerable. Mm. I, I found it very intimidating, honestly. Um, and we were encouraged to just lean into it. And I actually found that very, very useful. I think I think if you let them be what they are and don't kind of skip over them, you can find you can find so much richness in them. For sure, for sure. And, and was there a process by which you, I guess, filled in that O with, with something specific uh, for each moment? Or was that just an intuitive thing? Or, or kind of how, how did you find yourself negotiating around that initial, I guess, stickiness? I'm trying to remember, actually. I feel like there was an exercise we did. It was like you had to treat it like a word that had a definition, you know? So you had to give it an intention or you had to give it a physical gesture, like, or aim it at someone or I can't remember exactly sure. what the task was but it really helped me help me assign it help me have ownership over it and assign it nice. meaning rather than just being a sound which I think is the really important thing one that I like to do is just you swearing um fucking happy horse <laughs> or whatever, <laughs> you know, like, just just put whatever you want in there um uh, just to just to give that sense of i guess ownership really to an actor i love that that's really great because it has it linguistically has a similar function yeah yeah i think so i, th I think o is for when words fail right and and it's just it's just a visceral noise that your body makes <laughs> i guess yeah oh totally there's a really fantastic article about um uh oh what's she called she's called scary it's an academic called scary and she writes about pain and about how you lose words when you're in pain and, and about sounding pain without words um and that's always really like that sort of resurfaces quite often that sounds working on Shakespeare. absolutely fascinating yeah because one thing that we don't necessarily uh, cotton on to so much these days is that passion the word passion actually was more closely associated with suffering back in shakespeare's time oh right like the passion of christ kind yeah of exactly yeah 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 and that love was a form of pain if we assume that it, they're all types of pain the o's <laughs> if we go there <laughs> obviously there's one right at the top and then there's one uh, uh there just before happy horse i guess what what are the two different types of pain yeah i think maybe the first pain is is that of like separation it's kind of like lacking him um and obviously so often with love that that does feel like a physical pain um and then maybe the second one is more like i mean i don't know if jealousy really counts as a physical pain in that sense but it feels more like god damn you horse <laughs> like, <laughs> god damn you horse and of course it, that speaks that this whole conversation speaks so much to what she says about the delicious poison right mm. where she's like now do i feed myself with most delicious poison she's 
she's almost like that is her for me i read that as her saying god i'm torturing myself here thinking about him right absolutely so that delicious poison is that uh would we say that's an oxymoron would we say that's a, a, a an antithesis i think i guess i would go oxymoron probably uh, yeah a paradox maybe in fact yeah i like paradox better so we're almost at the 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 <laughs> how to put it the sore thumb if you like uh, but there's just one oh, thing yes. I'd love to explore just before we get there, which is the start of that thought, which is think on me. Um, who who is she inviting to think on her, and what do you think she means by when she when she requests that? Yes. Okay. So this is another thing that would absolutely, I'd it would get a little sort of you know note in pen when I was going through this for the first time. <laughs> yeah. um, I think this is a perfect example of somewhere editors have disagreed and like as we were talking about with um punctuation earlier uh, most of the punctuation that you'll see in like modern laid out shakespeare mm. will have come from people that are not shakespeare because there's actually yeah. not a huge amount of punctuation is there in the originals in the sure, folios sure. um and even the folios were compiled by someone else right or they were sort of well, well yeah like a team right so there was yeah. so there was obviously ben johnson and uh i forget the other guy's name right now but there were, there were at least two uh was it hemming and condell that were part of the original I team that know. actually put it together i think it was hemming and condell composed the plays and then handed them over to the printers who then used five compositors to do the actual printing and obviously there's errors from hemming errors from condell errors from all the five printers potentially obviously we don't know um but yeah. but obviously the, there are a lot of hands in between us and the original dramatic intent if you like precisely um, and that's even before you get to like modern editors laying it out for who know, then kind of fix it for readers rather than for speakers right you know on the yeah, whole, yeah, it's, yeah it's there to be grammatical rather than rhetorical so yeah so it certainly causes as many problems as it solves in some respects yeah and this sentence feels like one of those because mm. the so the one that i'm looking at i don't know what you have but mine has that sentence finished with a question mark so think on me that i'm with phoebus amorous pinches black and wrinkled deep in time i have a question mark <laughs> there as well yes uh and it, okay. it, it doesn't to me read like a question <laughs> no <laughs> yeah and, and i guess making it a question trips up for me slightly the journey of the the thoughts because why have we gone from delicious poison into this new idea so the sense that i am in real time making of it right now so yeah yeah yeah, yeah. This, in For fact sure. isn't sense um, <laughs> but i wonder whether um so if we start looking from he's speaking now or murmuring where's my serpent of old nile so mm. the implication there is he's thinking about her and then she's mm. like oh yeah that's my nickname oh this is really nice and horrible thinking about this so then is the question maybe something like, would he think about me even though I'm X, Y, Z unattractive? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So is it is it more like, could he be thinking on me? And maybe even that is what the poison is because she's saying like, I'm imagining him thinking about me, but maybe he isn't. Like, would he even think about me because X, Y, Z, etc. Yeah, right. Because it's, it's a, a fantasy that she's having is that he's calling out for her. But yeah. in reality, he might not be. And that's actually terrifying. Yeah. Interesting. That's a really interesting theory. Because I, I guess in my head, and again, I, I only put this out here as a, as a parallel uh, possibility. Um, Please. <laughs> uh, but no, no, but honestly, because I think that's a really interesting discovery. And I think it's texturally more rich than, than 
mine. But I guess to me, I thought Think On Me was to Charmian. In that, <laughs> you know, is is he shout, Is he calling out for me? Of course he is. Why wouldn't he be? Look at me. I'm amazing. And Caesar and Pompey. And... But, but what, I, what I like about your version is that it keeps it more anchored in with Antony. Uh, and that then, I guess, the invocation of Caesar and Pompey not, is not just the invocation of a CV. It is um, other big figures Comforting like him himself. that have felt that way before. Yeah. So it's like, well, is he thinking about me? Well, Caesar did and Pompey did. You know, it's got that slight quality to it, I guess. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's really interesting. And what I like about the, about the Charmian idea is that, like, I, I mean, like, imagining being on stage, she's been talking essentially to someone who is not present for quite a long time. So dramatically, it could be a bit of a, it could be a nice tonal change to actually re-engage directly with Charmian. Right, and kind you suddenly of, put the spotlight you know, back on her. <laughs> Have it, exactly. Having forgot she's existed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So we're, we're at uh, the line that you, you flagged on, uh, flagged up early on, uh, and I think is, is significant to, uh, to uh, explore. So if, if you want to just give us a read from Think On Me down to Deep In Time, and then we'll dive into the significance, I guess. Sure. Think on me that am with Phoebus amorous pinches black and wrinkled deep in time. Wonderful. Great. So, um, obviously, <laughs> Cleopatra is crediting Phoebus's amorous pinches for her black skin, right? Am I understanding that correctly? That's how I read it, yeah. Like, I found it quite ridiculous when I first read it because I was like, like, <laughs> she's not like tan, she's black, like, of race, like, from her heritage. Um <laughs> But then I actually, you know, I haven't done a huge amount of reading and I'm sure there'll be much better informed people about this. But I think was she um, like she was considered to actually be she was Mesopotamian. Is that right? Oh, yeah. The, yeah. The, she was from the Ptolemaic dynasty, a descendant of an Im, uh, inbreeding of the Ptolemaic dynasty, as far as I'm aware. Um, right. So, so she wasn't like an Egyptian person today would be like dark skinned yeah exactly she's not necessarily uh, dark skinned um even if she was egyptian but then they also think that she's a kind of greek import essentially from the time of alexander the great well this is what i read yeah and that she was like greek speaking and kind of yeah and i guess also there is something to be said for the fact that like if you live full-time in egypt like you will actually be tanned probably yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. the sun does it, exist in egypt yeah it is a, it right, is a famously, hot place yeah yeah <laughs> So I I laughed first and then I was like, well, actually, that's, that's not a lie. Like, you know, um, but I guess what's interesting is the way that it's set alongside wrinkled here. And the, mm. that the, depending on how we choose to read those preceding lines, obviously, um, for me, it seems like she's saying it seems like she thinks she's saying something negative about herself she's saying black and wrinkled as in like sure yeah and, and the, the culture i guess at the time uh, was that the more noble you were the less time you spent outdoors because outdoors used to be for work and so exactly. if you were tanned you were kind of a, of a lower class i guess um so the, yeah so so the idea of having white skin in elizabethan england that was seen as the beauty standard and therefore blackness is is i guess placed in opposition to that here um sure and this but, is something that came up with romeo and juliet plenty because right like, yeah juliet, of course f famously she is written as a white character which is implied <laughs> from um a lot of romeo's compliments towards her about how pale she is and how like 
<laughs> white like the moon and radiant and dove yeah. skinned and oh let me compare you to a tawny raven which is so hideous and so on <laughs> so that is obviously quite unfortunate um yeah as a, as a black actress playing Julia, well, as that's, a that's the question i guess i have and and i suppose it's it is obviously for this piece this is the piece we're exploring but i'd love to i'd love to go into some of those discussions that you had with juliet as well because i'm sure it will inform this but how when you encountered this in the text how do you go about negotiating your interaction with that and the implications of you speaking those words what i guess are the things that you have to do when you encounter um this kind of racialized language of shakespeare's yeah it's really interesting and i think you know if i'm lucky enough to do more shakespeare it'll come up again and again mm. um and there are so many conversations to be had um in my experience specifically with this production of Romeo and Juliet um, this summer, we were sent an edited version of the script um, as our sort of first draft um, mm. before we came into rehearsals and a fair bit of the more heavily racialized language had simply been cut. Um, and so I'm sure some of that was just because they had to cut some stuff. It's a long, long play. Um, sure, yeah. And I'm sure that some other bits of it were because they were quite heavily anti-black racist um or you know we would read them as that today um and to be honest i was just quite relieved um i think it takes so much energy to have these conversations in the rehearsal room oh, and it, course, obviously it's yeah. absolutely vital and so important but i kind of in a way felt quite happy that some of those some of that material had just been taken off my plate <laughs> for sure, um for sure. so i think a lot of what remained was language more around light and dark rather than like specifically paleness and blackness if that makes sense For sure. um so much of romeo and juliet's relationships happen at like dawn and dusk or you know at the party um i mean even that line oh my gosh what is it about the pearl and the ethiop's ear i was like yeah. i am the ethiop <laughs> literally <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so i think um i think for me the language that was around like her being bright and radiant it can mean so many different things and that is one of the things that I love most about this language is that it's so rich and there are so many interpretations and so I felt that it could be true of Juliet of my Juliet in the context of her bright mind or the good energy that she radiates or for sure you know yeah, yeah. charisma can the be way radiant, she draws right? every eye towards her it doesn't necessarily need to be that her skin is pale you know but i do think it's really interesting as well that here you know if if we choose to read this line about think on me that i'm um black um <laughs> beauty standards exist and in a way it was quite interesting and kind of exciting to think about even though it's through the words of a white man think about a woman like wrestling with that in a totally different culture so so many years ago you know that she still might feel unattractive because of her blackness um or because yeah, of, of course in th i guess her age this wrinkled thing as well you know um yeah. so on that uh note obviously in in Romeo and Juliet you said a lot of this racialized text if you like or text that would be interpreted as racialized was cut is this something that you would want to cut it's interesting I think I think no um and I guess my okay. argument for that would be that race is inherently at play in this play um 
because mm. th- she is a black character as in you know <laughs> as we've discussed that can mean many things but like she is certainly a racially othered character relative to people like mark antony for sure octavius etc etc flavia certainly mm. um and so i think mm. t- i mean to cut only this line would simply be to lose her speaking about her own racial identity whereas lots of other people do so you that you then be a point of cutting it all at which point you're losing some of the richness of the play. But that said, I think what would be really important would be to not just leave it and not mine its richness. Like I think I as a, as a performer would want to know that I'd really found ways to say those words, which are quite like, you know, racially violent in ways that make people mm. think and that show maybe what's been said to her in the past or, you know, what she's wrestling with because of the culture that she's in rather than just letting it be a flippant. I see racialized remark and the same with everyone with all the others yeah sure so i'm looking through here i've just got to broad-fronted caesar um uh, and i think we, we're back to where we started which is morsel yeah. which is wonderful um so i think we've actually now uh, in a quite circumlocutous fashion <laughs> managed to uh, navigate our way through most of the text at least yeah. once uh, is there anything else right now that's kind of standing out for you I guess just that we've we've spoken a little bit about who she's speaking to at what time. And I think whenever mm. people address people that aren't there, that often to me signifies that that person is lonely or like wishes that they were elsewhere or um, like, why are they mm. having to conjure people to join them in their conversation? And so- Sure, when Charmian's right there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and like, and you see it in Juliet a lot because I think she is quite a lonely person. Um, and for her, she'll sort of make characters out of the the natural elements and stuff using mythological language. But I think it's similar here where Cleopatra's sort of summoning these men to her who have essentially abandoned her or, you know, died or they've broken up or whatever. Um, so I think it's just always verb, quite summoning. It's very regal yeah. <laughs> quality yeah. to summoning, yes. Uh, fabulous. So... I'm just going to do a very quick recap of the annotated version and just point up some of the things that we've found, some of the things that you've kind of decided on. Uh, and just let me know how they strike you, if there's any anything in there that kind of feels false on second hearing. Uh, and then after that, I think we'll, we'll just go for one and we'll have a listen to one, if that's cool. Mm, yeah, great. Amazing. So we started with O, Charmian, uh, that O being uh, an O of the pain of separation, we said. Uh, and obviously we're, we're addressing Charmian. Uh, we've got these rapid fire questions, uh, four in a row. Uh, we've got questions in the midline break there that we uh, don't give a chance to answer. <laughs> so there's, a, I guess, a kind of a pace through those. Um, but then when we arrive uh, on question four, or is he on his horse, that horse kind of captures the imagination. We populate that out uh, kind of into the hologram that we're trying to summon <laughs> Anthony back to us with. Um, the next O, happy horse, is a jealousy or a goddamn you, happy horse. Um, to bear the weight, euphemistic double entendre uh, of Antony. Uh, do bravely, horse, is our kind of third horse. Um, with, uh, with threes like that, we've got horse question mark, horse comma, horse exclamation mark, I noticed as well. Uh, they all get their own little piece of punctuation. Um, there's a, there's a, a tool that I use, which is cheap and dirty, but it often works, which is big, bigger, biggest. Oh, yeah, I love that. <laughs> and then we've got the Demi Atlas. So we've got this kind of elevated language. I guess that's the one thing that we didn't um, 
I guess make it make a, a choice about necessarily was what what do we feel this elevated language Atlas Phoebus the serpent of the Nile um, the arm and the burgeonets um, all of these things feel like they're elevated language so so w- what choice do you want to make off the back of that how how does that inform how you might see you to perform it I guess yeah I think um, quite often these things can feel very removed from our day to day but what I find really exciting and like nourishing about them is is just the epic scale um you know things like love or missing someone you love or feeling abandoned they can feel like the biggest feelings in the world even though it's only two people out of however many billion on on the planet um Mm. and it always really reminds me of um this beautiful poem called the good morrow by john dunn um this phrase always comes back to me where um, I might just, I might read you a couple of lines actually if we've got time. Please do, um, no, I'd love that. And now good morrow to our waking souls, which watch not one another out of fear. For love, all love of other sights controls and makes one little room and everywhere. Um, and so he really, lo- he, like, he really plays with this idea of like, when two lovers are together, that room can just be the entire world. And like, there Beautiful. isn't anything outside. And you know, you see it in Romeo and Juliet. And I think in a way you see it in that language from Cleopatra there as well, where she's saying, you know, because he holds me up, he is Atlas holding up the entire sky, the entire world. So I guess it's the strength of feeling is is driving the, the strength of imagery then, I suppose, if we were to put a pin in it. Yeah, and also I think the fact that like sometimes only only big ideas will do so that so there's immediately for me that sense of like reaching like let me make this point you know so then we've got this uh serpent of old nile we've talked about the all of the many connotations of serpents not all of which obviously are playable but certainly are things that we can imagine are going to be uh, hitting the audience's minds yeah. um and then delicious poison the kind of paradox of that uh the self-effacing quality of um, Phoebus Amorous pinches black and wrinkled deep in time uh, and then the the going back into the well of memory as it were um, and pulling out Caesar uh, the morsel and the monarch um, the idea of this yeah tiny consumable and then this kind of world world defining power uh, and then great Pompey and his and, and the ungreatness the absurd ungreatness of <laughs> his uh his behavior when he was in your presence if you like <laughs> um and i wonder if there's if, if, even in just how the word great is evoked there to create that contrast then with the absurdity of the behavior that you go on to describe if you see what i mean yeah love um, that yeah yeah and then and then the the double entendre of die there uh, with looking on his life um wonderful so uh, that's a kind of whistle stop tour of just some of the discoveries that we've made um how is that all sounding? Do you feel like you'd love like to uh, kind of give us another a rendition of it with some of those things in mind? Yeah, I'd love to, yeah. Wonderful. All right. So uh, I guess the last question before we hear uh, our final thing is, how do you like to spend your moment before? So if you're going to go into uh, a performance, whether it's that you're in the wings on stage, either for the first scene or for a given scene, whatever it might be, how do you like to get yourself in the groove ready to perform for me i find music really helpful um so uh for juliet i had uh, i had a playlist of like songs that evoked the moods throughout her journey um and i decided to actually like you know not jump the gun and to just start at the beginning and start in that headspace um so 
the Juliet that we ended up finding was very kind of young and exuberant and innocent at the beginning and so I had this song um called Trampoline which is by this um she's like half British half Japanese and she's um she has kind of bunches and it's all very like bouncy upbeat kind of poppy energy um and so I'd love to just like listen to that and jump around and a couple of my castmates would come and like you know jump around with me and we just get really just like pumped and happy basically um which is the energy that she comes on with so that just felt yeah really helped me get in the get in the headspace all right well having a little bit of a think about that in the context of i suppose this piece uh, and cleopatra it'd be interesting to know what you think might be an appropriate <laughs> piece of music for uh, the queen of an empire that uh, that is missing her <laughs> lover um <laughs> just to put you on the spot completely. Um, but it might be interesting for our uh, our audience to go away and listen to it in preparation. Oh my gosh, they... I love that. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the artist. I actually have a, I have a song in mind. Um, Amazing. The song that I've chosen to precede this speech is D'Angelo, Feel Like Making Love. That sounds like an entirely appropriate piece. Uh, I Obviously, for copyright reasons, I can't include it in the podcast itself, but go out there and find it, have a listen, uh, and then come back here when you're ready to have a little listen to Isabel Adamarco Young giving us some Cleopatra. So, Isabel, whenever you're ready, please take it away. Oh, Charmian. Where thinks thou he is now? Stands he or sits he? Or does he walk? Or is he on his horse? Oh, happy horse to bear the weight of Antony. Do bravely, horse, for what thou whom thou movest? The demi-atlas of this earth, the arm and burgeonet of men. He's speaking now, or murmuring. Where's my serpent of old Nile? For so he calls me. Now I feed myself with most delicious poison. Think on me that am with Phoebus's amorous pinches black and wrinkled deep in time. Broad-fronted Caesar, when thou wast here above the ground, I was a morsel for a monarch. And great Pompey would stand and make his eyes grow in my brow. There would he anchor his aspect and die with looking on his life. <laughs> fabulous you know when you can hear the smile <laughs> <laughs> oh that was so lovely mate. i think that i might have been having so a bit lovely. too much fun there <laughs> could, could have got a bit of like <laughs> actually missing your boyfriend <laughs> <laughs> are you trying to infer that there's some very similitude to this <laughs> you're ch- channeling to be fair i mean covid is real Covid is real, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, did anything strike you there? I guess uh, in the second journey through uh, the speech, uh, is there anything that you might want to go on to kind of dig deeper into? Yeah, I think um, I think probably if I was kind of so in an example where this was like a second read in a rehearsal context, um, I'd probably write down that I would want to work on pace because um, it feels like that's something that obviously just comes with rehearsal but something like you know getting that of sort course. of tumbling feeling at the beginning of all the questions and then really like really sort of savoring the imagery around like oh my gosh the happy horse and the weight of Antony and um you know really kind of uh luxuriating in some of that 
and then getting the sharpness of like, oh, he's speaking now and I can hear him really kind of conjuring that image of like, I can, I'm hearing him in the moment. Um, I think that's a really nice way of kind of keeping these stretches of like one person speaking alive. Um, sure. Yeah. And then maybe a bit more, like I think even a bit more darkness to really do the racial content justice, like, you know, uh, around Think On Me. Um, and I think probably like, I, it, it, actually like just then it, it made me wonder whether she's quite a good mimic because um, like she quotes him and then she sort of, um, you know, she describes broad-fronted Caesar and then she has Pompey and she kind of talks about what he does. And it makes me wonder whether, I mean, I guess there could be some humour in her being a bad mimic as well. <laughs> but like, <laughs> I wonder whether there's room to like really, really develop. Like, how does she think of these men who've been so significant to her? And like, does she, does she even physically embody them maybe? Or, you know, it felt like there could be some juice there. Mm, lovely. Oh, so much to continue. Oh, we, I just wish we were we had that second day in rehearsal now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> listen, mate, this has been an absolute joy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for all your incredible insights into this uh, fantastic bit of text. Um, it's just been uh, fascinating to be able to discover more about, obviously, not only your approach to Shakespeare, uh, but your feelings about this speech and about Juliet as well. Um, really, really appreciate hearing uh, so much about that from you. Um, Obviously, we've worked you very hard in this session. So <laughs> if there is anything that you would like to plug, we would love to um, provide that space and opportunity now before our uh, audience signs off for the night. Thank you so much. This has been a joy. I feel like I just want to do this every week now. <laughs> like, whether we're recording or not, let's just chat. <laughs> it's I love great. it, mate. Let's do it. Let's do um, it. <laughs> so, uh, uh, yes. Yeah, so I would just love if everyone... Uh, uh, wanted to check out my drag collective we're called pex drag kings p-e-c-s um and we do lots of exploration around um conceptions of gender gender performativity um it's all kind of cabaret format it's really really great fun um it'll get you laughing and get you thinking um might even get you dancing depending on which event you come to um so yeah come and see us um and other than that, the work that I'm doing, I'm, I don't think I'm allowed to talk about any of it yet. Um, but watch television <laughs> and you might see me. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, we will keep our eyes peeled. Absolutely. Uh, and I hope to be able to get along myself to a pet event very soon because it sounds absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much, Isabel. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. I hope that you've enjoyed this session as much as I have. And we will see you next time for more Owning Shakespeare. Shakespeare.